new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in uh, the Niagara region, Hamilton, Ontario. Is Yeah, sure. That's still Niagara. <laughs> I guess so. So if people don't know, this is also Canada. Yes, you are listening to a Canadian podcast. And uh, again, we are happy to welcome everybody from around the world. We get a lot of listeners from around the globe, Asia, Australia, Africa, America, Latin America. All right, that's enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, we know, we know <laughs> what the <laughs> countries in the world. You're aware of different places, <laughs> but happy to have all of you here. And we get to do another amazing podcast with a very interesting guest. Her name is Lauren Kane Lysak, and she is a pet taxidermist, mortician, artist, and animal lover. After high school, she worked in a funeral home where she found that the corporate nature and lack of creativity opportunity left her drained. She became interested in taxidermy after meeting a bird taxidermist in real life while volunteering at the San Bernardino County Museum. Lauren has made it her goal to work with pets and preserve their tangible memory for eternity. Um, And she has a website and Instagram, and we'll share those at the end. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Lauren. Well, it's great to finally talk to you. I'm so excited about this podcast just because I have no idea what you really do. You know, like it's it was (laughs) one of those things that has, has always been like, distant from me in my life and only mm-hmm. through doing the podcast and started talking about you know death and dying with people does these these different things in life pop up like we had a person on that did memorial jewelry with, from oh, pet yeah. hair and, and bones i was like oh man that's so interesting it really got me thinking and so when i yeah. saw your instagram i was like wow like, like and so i reached out to you and i'm glad you're able to come on and talk all about your journey into this really, I think, mysterious field. And, um, and then also the questions you get too, because I'm guessing there's a ton of questions out there that you answer repeatedly, (laughs) because it's not something we normally talk about with friends and family. So I guess the, uh, the uh, first question I have is, so after high school, you went to a funeral home, was that like designed? Mm -hmm. Was it like something you wanted to do was to work in a funeral home? Or was it just like a Uh, job you had because you needed money? uh, It was something that I wanted to do. So in high school, we had a career day. And so they have, you know, hairstylists and police officers, firemen, um, lots of like typically normal jobs come in and they have, you know, like an hour spot in each class to talk about their occupation. And I saw that on the list way at the bottom was um, a mortician from a local funeral home. And it just immediately piqued my interest. Um, I was super excited to attend that. I actually went to two meetings that same day, just so I can listen to the second one again. Um, and met the people that I'd be working at at funeral home through there, actually. So um, it was just kind of a kismet thing, and it worked out. And I started working there shortly after graduating, graduating high school. But as you said, I quickly realized that it might not be the correct field for me. Were you like the only one interested in the mortician or were there other students that also, you know, it strike a passion in them? Uh, there were a lot of kids that showed up to that, that meeting, but I think it was mostly out of the shock value. I think people were just like, Ooh, let's do this creepy thing. Like people weren't really taking it seriously. 
there were a few. Actually, I got hired with one other student from my class, and um, he worked in the funeral home for quite a while, a lot longer than I did. Yeah, I'm trying to think of when when I was a, in high school, I probably wouldn't have went there. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like it's it's not something that I even knew anything really about with death or grief or anything like that. So, you know, it's amazing what strikes us what like yeah. hits a chord in us and we follow that and then we see where it goes and he said like it went to a place that it wasn't totally satisfying and so you no. needed to find a new path so was it difficult finding a new path from because it's like i can only imagine i just really finished graduating so i've been a student for most of my life <laughs> so um but when yeah. you switch fields or when something that a goal that you thought was going to achieve something doesn't, was it hard to change or was, did life just take you like really smoothly out of there into the next profession? At first I think it kind of was cause I, I had this, um, this idea in my head that that's what I was going to do. That I was, once I graduated high school, I was going to go to Cypress college, which is in Southern California. It's the only college in California that teaches uh, mortuary science. So I was really planning on going there. I had attended a few of the um, open houses and was really on the straight and narrow, had a plan to go there after community college. And um, it just didn't work out that way. But I feel like even going and working at the funeral home and getting that experience and learning that wasn't what I wanted to do was really integral to building what I have today and shaping, um, you know, what I didn't want a funeral home to be and what. I would want for my own loved ones. So I think it was really integral that I went through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I firmly believe in that, especially with people, young people who are getting into careers is kind of trying. I think it's good to try things out and see what sticks and what you like and or don't yeah. like about something. What was it that you liked about it? And what was this something that you didn't like? I loved, loved, loved working with the grieving families. Um, just any kind of way that if I could bring just one smile to their face or get them some kind of comfort, I would go home just beaming. That was uh, huge. But most of the time I was stuck in the office, um, answering a lot of phone calls. And I was encouraged by management to upsell um, and try to get people to, you know, pay for bigger funerals and more services that maybe they didn't need. And that was just something that never sat well with me and I was never able to do that. So it's just that corporate um, selling everything, every, every death is a sale that really rubbed me the wrong way. I could see that. Yeah. I could see it taking away from the fulfillment of the job from the main purpose and from the joy of it as well. Because you get joy, like you said, out of and and fulfillment out of the contact with the family and making them feel better, and and really that's that's what I would want out of someone who worked in that field. But yeah, like you know, like everything else in life, uh, <laughs> money and corporations and marketing kind of ruin things, mm-hmm. and yeah. you kind of have to now appease the business side of it. But yeah. it seems like you were more interested in kind of like the hands-on interaction and and actual job itself. Um, which yeah. I think is great. And, and it seems like you've carried that forward into what you've went on and did next. What were the ne- what was the next step for you? 
well, after that, there was kind of an interim where I was thinking about going into psychology, going into counseling. Um, and then I've, I've always loved art. It's just something that I've always loved to do and just comes out of me. I have like a, a need to make things. So, you know, finding taxidermy was kind of a perfect melding of all of my interests. So I say like I've married all of my passions. Um, death care being one, animals being another, and art. And I feel like that is that is taxidermy. All of those things are in are integral to the process, especially when you're dealing with with pets. In traditional taxidermy where you're doing um, a lot of trophy mounting, things like that, there isn't that emotional side to the work. Mm. Um, it's just very much, you know, get the animal looking as best as it can. And it's going to be on a wall for a hunter to show the amazing catch that he or she um, hunted but it's not it doesn't have an emotional connection to the past like a pet taxidermy would yeah i could see that i could see uh if if someone and that's also traditional the trophy mounts and people who hunt and and getting you know animals to our head stuffed and whatnot but mm-hmm. yeah, I could see that not being as much of a connection for those individuals. Like if you're a hunter and you, let's say you, you kill a moose, because we have moose mm-hmm. here, mice, meese yeah. here in Canada, <laughs> mooses, we have mooses. And, uh, <laughs> you know, okay, you're proud, you go out and you hunt a moose. Yeah, I mean, there might be a momentary mom, a momentary connection or, or whatever as yeah. you kind of do your job and kill the animal whatnot. And then, okay, you want to bring it home as a trophy and help remind you of your trip and whatnot. Great. But mm-hmm. that's that's obviously very different than having a relationship with an animal, cat or a dog or whatever, yeah. guinea pig, and having you come and, you know, go through your process and then having it memorialized. Yeah. And I can see, undermine, yeah, very different. You know, like a hunter's process. Like, I don't want to say that all hunting is bad. I, I think, you know, some hunting is, is good and depredates like depredation um, efforts where there are, you know, some species that are out of control and, you know, farmers need to protect their, their harvest. So they're having to trap certain animals and things like that. Um, and some, you know, in that case, some forms of hunting are sometimes necessary to um, just to sustain the types of living that we do, which again, that also has some ethical pushback. So it's, it's really tricky talking about animals, and taxidermy, what we do with them after their death is really tricky because they don't have consent. Yeah, absolutely. And and politics aside, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where it can get a little bit confusing because you know taxidermy is not so much in the public sphere, if you will, anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a lot of misconceptions about it. Uh, on the oh, whole, yeah. and obviously we'll we'll get you to fill us in on some of those. But um, yeah, walk us through what what how you got into it, and, and what was the driving factor. Sure. So the driving factor was was really meeting a bird taxidermist in real life and seeing, oh my gosh, this is something that that's accessible, something I can learn. You know, here's a real person in flesh and blood that's done it and is telling me how to do it. So that was very inspiring. Um, and so she kind of just recommended that I get a book, um, any kind of book on taxidermy and just start studying. And so that's what I did. I got a book on Amazon or eBay. I think it was like a used, like super old book um, from the 80s on taxidermy. 
And I just started studying and collecting all the tools that um, it listed in the book. So I'd start going to craft stores and picking up a thing here, picking up a thing there, until I had a taxidermy kit. And once I had every, all my tools together, I decided it was time to then look for a specimen. First bird, I got a parakeet from a local pet shop. And I felt very weird calling around these pet stores and asking if they had dead animals to give to a learning taxidermist. But I was able to get over that pretty quick and was able to find a parakeet that had just passed away overnight. And I went the next day to go pick it up and brought it home and kind of sat with it for a few days before I gained the courage to actually work on it. I remember having it in the freezer and taking it out and kind of holding it and thinking to myself that this is the first time I've ever held a dead thing of any kind or had had a real connection with, with death. And I kind of had to train myself to think like, this is okay. This is safe. This bird can't harm me. And to go from there, because I've always had this terrible, terrible fear of dying and anxiety of death. And I can go more into that later about um, my Oma passing and how I was never around for her hospice care or the time that she died. And I didn't see her ever again. And we were really close. And I think that left some kind of mark on me and possibly what I'd be doing in the future. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. Because I think a lot of people probably have that fear of dying or just a fear yeah. of death itself. And so how did working with, well, first of all, how did you find working in the funeral home first? Because <laughs> that's the last place I would go to if I had a fear of dying. But then also, huh. how do you get over that fear working with the animals? Because like you said, like it's not like a school you're going, you're doing this by yourself with your yeah. own uh, time and energy. So yeah. like, how, how did you work through that? Because I think that's special that you were even able to work through that on your own. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. I think it was just the curiosity and um, just the wonder. And I just, I had to do it. And what, but once I did, once I, you know, made that first incision and the first time I did taxidermy, I was actually in my Opa's garage. Opa is um, German for grandpa in case um, those don't know. And he was the only one in my family that was kind of supportive and open to letting me practice in his garage. Cause you know, even though it was like a tiny little parakeet, it just freaked out my whole family and all my <laughs> friends. So, but he was the only one that was cool enough to um, open up his garage. And he has a little, he had a work desk in there and uh, set up all my tools. And that's where I did my first bird. And once I opened it up for the first time, I was really worried that I was going to get grossed out or have a, you know, some kind of adverse reaction to seeing, I don't know, the inside of this bird. But it was extremely therapeutic and I had never felt so calm in my life. Um, and I think that's what really kept me um, stuck to this, to, to wanting to learn taxidermy more um, was how serene it was and seeing that it's okay. It's whatever's on the inside is exactly what we're made of on the outside. And it's not quite so different. Wow, that's interesting. So just facing the fear was enough to, I guess, let it dissipate just by doing that. At least, 
Yeah, at least in that case. Like, I still feel like I am working through uh, my death anxiety. Uh, it's still something that I'm always, I always think I have cancer or, you know, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> so uh, it's something I deal with all the time. And, you know, even working with death on a daily basis, you know, I think it's it's helped me to to become more calm about it and to be, I'm trying to just become a little more graceful about the thought that one day I will die and that's okay. Mm. Um, and I just attended a living funeral ceremony. Have you guys heard about that? Yeah, I think so. It's uh, where you kind of want to celebrate someone's life before they die. It's no, sort think... of. Mm. Um, a living funeral ceremony is where um, there are um, the people that decided to participate, and I was one of those people. And the facilitator has set up little memorial booths, uh, if you will, uh, with each person's photo and the date they were born and the day that they so-called died. And we were asked to write a goodbye letter to ourselves and to our family members and friends. And kind of led through a death meditation afterwards of um, we laid down and shrouds were placed over our bodies. Uh, weighted pillows were pressed onto her, our eyes, and it kind of mimics this feeling of being buried or being um, in a womb or something. Wow. Um, and we come out of it, you know, the facilitator says, oh, you're feeling the warmth return to your fingertips and your toes, and you start moving again, and it's like this rebirth. And we all came out of this with immense gratitude and joy and just like pure love. And it was amazing to see uh, the way that the, the whole mood of the room had shifted. Wow. That's, um, that's a really cool exercise. I think uh, yes. I could see the usefulness of it because I've heard of, uh, and I've done myself kind of meditations that kind of do visualizations and visualize yourself dying and in a casket and even, even getting into details of, okay, picture, worms you know eating your flesh and whatnot but i mean the point of it kind of graphic but the point of it is to put your thoughts and then ultimately hopefully you can kind of transfer that to your body into that state and then you know once you're dwelling in that state you can kind of focus on those ideas which is you know think about mm -hmm. your life or think about your family and it really puts things into perspective and it's just yeah. a visualization to kind of do that but this is even more it's uh, immersive if you will <laughs> like doing all these yeah. motions and sights and sounds and having them play into it wow i can really so what was it like for you let's say an hour after that oh it was awesome i just i felt elated um and i went to lunch with um a death doula afterwards mm -hmm. so we were just talking about just more stuff um in regards to death care and we're shooting ideas back and forth so it was just it was a really great group of people and the person that puts it on um, her living funeral ceremonies her name is Emily Cross and she's in a band called Cross Record um, they were just doing a big tour so I was super super grateful to get to attend that yeah I would um, that's that's the kind of feeling that uh, I got when I did uh, the meditation itself but it's one of those things where you just kind of you don't care as much about the little things that bothered us before because you've kind no. of dwelled you know you were emerged in a in a state of thinking about your death and then higher higher yeah. things like love and gratitude and then you can go out and someone messes up your coffee order and okay whatever 
Oh right? no, no, nothing mattered. The traffic didn't matter. The the bad mimosa didn't matter. It was fine. Everything was fine. Wow, so interesting. I say you uh you like to do different things <laughs> than most people, and I think that's kind of cool because right there's there's different. We all have different fears and different worries and different things. It's like how can we figure those out and to live a better, more peaceful life. And you're yeah. doing some of that stuff. And I, and I got to uh, commend you for that because some people will just hide away from that. But as much as you have this anxiety and this fear, you're not really so afraid that you're not willing to find or try to find an answer to that, to reduce yeah. that in a way. And I think there's something about that. You have a lot of courage. And I think that's the biggest thing. You have courage in doing that. And you have a courage to pursue a career, as you said, when most people would think you're crazy or they disapprove of you and you still go after it anyways. <laughs> and so yeah. there's as much as you're an artist too, like there is something in you that really beats by its own drum. And I, I kind of, I like that because those people are rare in our society. So uh, I want to get back to you, to your journey on how you, okay. So you, you did this, uh, the parakeet, you, how did that turn out at the end once you went through that? It was, not so bad. Uh, <laughs> but not issues. so good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it did look like a bird, which was good. It looked kind of like a bird and it didn't rot. And that was my goal. I thought to myself, if this thing doesn't start to smell weird or go bad, then I've succeeded. At least I've, you know, preserved it. So that was kind of, I, you know, was setting my standards pretty low, but also just being realistic that most, you know, first taxidermy projects don't come out like we want them to. And, you know, the, my mentor, the first person that was, um, that was talking to me about bird taxidermy, she said that her first like 15 birds just didn't look like birds at all. <laughs> so um, it was encouraging. At least it kind of looked like a bird and I had to hop <laughs> the tail back on and all this That's horrible stuff. 15, <laughs> just a flock of Frankensteins. Yes. <laughs> but the, but they always get better it's like with each with each animal it's, you learn something different there's a different curveball thrown at you and you take that with you to your next experience um to to get better and better so how long i've been doing this for about nine years um and I, I, i'm still learning every day yeah, well, I took a quick peek at your Instagram page, and it seems like you've uh, you've developed into a real pro. <laughs> you know, Thank you. From from my a amateur ability to spot a pro, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's very interesting and uh, again fascinating. What what are some of the interesting animals that you've that you've done? Oh gosh, let's see. One of the most interesting that I've seen anatomically are um, any kind of smushed face animal, like they call it brachycephalic when oh, yeah. the face is flat. <laughs> oh, you yeah. do have one? Yeah, I have an old English uh, bulldog. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, they have the most interesting anatomy, especially um, in the bone structure. So um, a lot of times like I've gotten a Persian cat that had this great smushed face and um, her owner was super, super kind and was really curious to see also what she looked like underneath the skin. And this was kind of part of her grieving process was that she wanted to be a part of her cat's second journey in this part of his life or her life. And um, I had skinned the cat, which you have to do in taxidermy. 
and it reveals all the muscle structure underneath the skin. And she wanted to see the photos. So I took photos of that and um, it's just this alien looking creature. You just can't even imagine what these guys look like without the fluff. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, but also they still have their personality. And so when I sent her this photo with discretion, she was just overcome with joy and so glad that she had the opportunity to see that. But what other animals? Um, anything that's hairless is really weird to work with. I've taxidermied a few hairless rats. So in that case, you actually have to re-sculpt all the wrinkles because they don't really do it themselves. Oh, okay. Um, you have to rearrange the skin back onto a form mm. to create these wrinkles again and even re-sculpt the wrinkles and put the skin back over each wrinkle. So the fur can and, hide that. You don't have to do that with the fur. Yes. Yes, fur. exactly. So things that are hairless are a lot more complicated. And then you'll ask you, since the skin discolors a lot, we have to repaint and repigment all the skin. Mm. So that's also a challenge. And they, they're really, really interesting. I think wow. I need to, I just, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, and what are the reactions when you present uh, a person with their animal? Uh, usually tears of joy, lots of gratitude. It's really, really special to see. Um, I, I always encourage people if they can to, if they want to pick their pet up here at our, um, at our home, that's what I recommend. Because I have a private viewing space in the back that I've set up as kind of a, just a really sacred space, a beautiful little funeral parlor where we can lay out an animal when it arrives. Um, so people have more time to say goodbye or at the time of the reunion, um, it's just a nice place for them to see it. And then it's kind of selfish of me, but I like to see their reactions and know that they're happy with, with what, um, with what the product came out to be. Um, it's hard sometimes when I'm, you know, sending a pet back, you know, across the country and it's like, I have no idea if they're going to like this thing or not. And, um, you know, you just hope that it meets their expectations because there's so many expectations to meet. Yeah, I yeah, it's a, it's it's an odd concept for some people to think about it, but I guess you could, you know, you have to imagine that if for a person or you know who owns a pet or has a pet in their life, and then the pet goes away, and let's say they're really connected and attached to the pet, you know, they love that pet a lot. Mm -hmm. You know this is a way that those people can memorialize their pet and kind of have them uh, remember them in their life by, you know, being in their home as, as a being in a, st a stuffed version of themselves. Obviously it's yeah. not the same thing and it's not, you know, not going to bring back your animal, but uh, I think yeah. just like, just like human ways of remembering the dead and, and look, you, we have to also remember like it wasn't very long ago that we were doing that. And there are some cultures that it's respected to kind of embalm or have a, a version of the the dead relative kind of stay uh, a little bit for a couple months in, in an embalmed form to kind of mm -hmm. remember them that way. But even, even, you know, we just go back in human history. This is not an ancient thing. I think it's just uh, in recent times, it's a little bit odd for some people because it's not very common. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I like to tell people to prepare them for 
just for to manage their expectations also as to what they're going to be receiving back because the animal the pet isn't going to feel the same isn't going to look quite the same because the soul is gone and you know there are changes that happen with taxidermy like the body won't be soft and pliable and squishy anymore it's going to be rigid um, unless we do a soft mount which is where when the animal is floppy and literally like a stuffed animal so i've done that a few times for people but um, I like to tell people that what I can do best is preserve the house that housed the soul. So I can preserve that home, but I can't put the soul back. And that was what really made your pet, you know, special. So uh, as long as people understand that, um, I think that they're usually very, very pleased with what they receive. Uh, this is a good time to talk about some of the misconceptions about the the industry, if you will, or the craft mm -hmm. of taxidermy. Could you walk us through some of those? And maybe also on the tail end of that, maybe an experience that didn't go so well for some people. Sure. Um, well, let's see. Misconceptions are that um, taxidermy is just an embalmed animal. Like we just pump it full of chemicals and prop it up and it dries like that. Um, that's totally not the case. Um, we're having to actually remove all the skin from the animal and then build a custom form that the preserved skin will be placed over at the end. So we're really having to rebuild the pet from the ground up. So even um, I, sometimes I'll take the leg bones, clean them all down, and then I'll actually re-sculpt muscle structure onto those bones as a scaffolding. And then the preserved skin is put back over that so that I try to keep as much of the pet intact and original as possible. And sometimes the bones can help us give um, more of a reference for that rebuilding. And um, that's something that they used to do in the Victorian times. They would use the actual skull in the taxidermy. The actual, the whole skeleton sometimes would be rearticulated and sculpted over. Um, I don't do completely all of that, but I do take some methods from the Victorian tradition and apply those to my work. Um, what else is a misconception? Uh, that's the big one. I think a lot of people just think that it's a lot easier than it is. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know, though, the, that it was that uh, thorough of a process. Yeah, yeah. Even the tanning process is complicated, which, which is sometimes even a separate profession in itself. A lot of taxidermists won't do the tanning at home, which is tanning is when you're turning a skin into or a fur into leather. And that's what okay. is put back onto the taxidermy. So some taxidermists, I do some tanning at home and then I send other stuff out to a tannery. So if it's like a really big, thick hide, they have machinery and such that I don't have, but they'll be able to get a much softer, nicer fur back. So sometimes I'll um, outsource things like that but mostly everything I do and um, I do from my home wow it's so interesting I'm curious has anything changed from because you were trained from the 1980s book <laughs> has yeah. anything changed now with all the technology um not a whole lot there just recently though there's been some papers coming out on taxidermists using 3D printing as the new technology for, so you could actually take your specimen, put it into 
a scanner and it scans the exact dimensions and size and shape of the animal and it'll spit out a perfect form. That's amazing to me. I mean, I would love to have that. So um, yeah, that's that really ma- exciting. Yeah, I could, um, I could see that being where that way you just put the, the, the skin over top of that form. That'd be interesting mm-hmm. if someone didn't yeah. want the whole process. Yeah. Um, but then it, it kind of hurts my feelings in a way because it's taking away that artistry that goes into it because ah, machines are taking we're having jobs. To, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you know, we're having to sculpt and paint and measure. It's just, and then, you know, a machine comes along and says, boop, 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 it's done. So that's kind of disheartening. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. I mean, now, now that you said that, I could see that there's a, there's a more, there's a more hands, obviously hands-on approach to kind of what you're doing because it's, it's, it's also it's more intimate. And, and look, if I was getting my uh, best friend animal stuffed, I'd want someone who's doing it, who's taking the time to do it rather than yeah pressing a couple buttons and pushing out a 3D skeleton. Yeah, plus like well the other um, pet preservation technology that's come about. Um, I think the first, I think it came about in the 80s also, is freeze-dry technology. So that's when you can put your pet into this freeze-dryer almost as is. I believe they remove the organs and the eyes, and that's it. And the eyes are replaced with a glass eye, but the rest of the pet is completely your own. So that's all the muscle structure, all the fat is left in, the brain is even left inside. So that's a really interesting other um technology that's come out and a lot of people prefer that method over traditional taxidermy just because it's a little less invasive and does it still look the same and last like as long or no that's what we don't really know um it does sometimes look about the same i've seen i've seen bad taxidermy and i've seen bad freeze dry so it it can go wrong in either case i think it just depends on um the person that's handling the preservation. That's really interesting about the bad taxidermy because I look at all your stuff and it's so good. And I'm like, of course they're going to love it, right? You really take the time. But like, I can't imagine someone giving up their pet to sort of be stuffed and then to get back something that's really bad and horrifying. Like that, what would that, like, mm-hmm. I can only imagine what that would do to their grief and their yeah. own journey through that. Because is it possible to redo um, something Ugh. after or no? I, it is possible. It it can be really difficult, just depending on the type of preservation it was. Mm. Um, it just would really depend. Like with uh, mammal taxidermy, um, we put something called hide paste underneath the skin, and that's what really gives us the opportunity to taxi or move the skin over the body. Taxidermy literally translates to movement of skin or to move skin. And, or arrange skin and so that's really what we're doing and the hide paste allows us to really maneuver the skin over the body um, almost it would feel almost like it feels like you're touching your arm and kind of feeling your skin move around on your arm and your hand that's how it would feel if we had the hide paste under the skin and once that dries it's fixed so that's the trouble is you know taking apart something that's been fixed and dried and all put back together again it's like a tattoo almost in a sense and like it's hard to basically redo a bad tattoo Uh, wow so you're really trusting that person and like and you have one shot that's wild that's a lot of pressure (laughs) i know (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So the, the pressure is something that, you know, I, I've had to learn to deal with and I'm still learning to deal with it um, and how to manage it and make sure that I'm taking care of myself and not overstressing. And that, that's been a huge challenge. Well, I said, like, as you get better and as more and more people compliment you, it gets easier. But when you're starting out, it's it's tough. It's really tough to realize that you're good. I think just in life and a lot of things, even like I have yeah. doubts, even though I've done like a PhD, I have doubts that, you know, like I know things as well as people think I do and stuff. Right. And it's just like, no, like you've, you've gone to like a, the extreme, but yet you still have these doubts inside that make you question, yeah. you know, your, how good you actually are in an area. Uh, so for you, it's been nine years. When did you actually make it a business? So how long have you been in business doing this? Uh, I made it a business, not sure not too long afterwards in 2012 um, and I was going to school for art and that's when I around the time I started going to school for art is when I also started taking up taxidermy and so in art school it was like I was going to school for painting so all my critiques and you know projects were you know painting or sculpting but um, my professors were really supportive about letting me incorporate taxidermy into those pieces so a lot of my work um, still involves taxidermy and, and art and melding those two things together. And I think, too, your eye for detail, because you have to do that with art, probably gives you that upper edge when it comes to doing taxidermy that maybe some people don't have. I think you, taxidermy is 100% an art. Every taxidermist will tell you that. And every taxidermist is an animal lover. Um, you have to have a real deep respect and, and love for the natural world to dedicate your life basically to to you know bringing them back it's a it's a life a life's calling and a life's work um i don't think i'll ever get to a point where i feel like i've i'm a master you know yeah that just reminded me of like how you guys were talking about combining art i remember there was a story i read of uh this gentleman i'm not sure what his field was but he would collect roadside rodents like mice who had kind of died on the road and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then he would create these dioramas with them acting and he would have costumes with them and, and all these really cool pictures. It was amazing. And and that's oh, where yeah. I was. I didn't really know that that was a thing, but it was really cool. He collected all these mice and then he, you know, in his house, he had, he had them set up in different like doll houses and whatnot, but uh, it, it was fascinating. Like, yeah. It sounds it's, like Walter Potter maybe. Oh, okay, maybe. Victorian taxidermist, he w- he did anthropomorphic taxidermy, which is where you dress them up in little clothes and they're doing, there's a whole wedding scene with kittens. Oh, okay, maybe, yeah. 30, yeah, about 20 to 30 kittens um, having <laughs> a, a wedding. Um, there's like a, a schoolhouse with toads and another schoolhouse with bunnies. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, he was a huge inspiration for me too, um, just seeing his work. That's kind of how I started was just doing a lot of little fun taxidermy pieces, like little, I used to do tons of mice and tons of rats because they were readily available. I could get them um, deceased already at the pet store where they passed away. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had connections with all the local pet shops and when they would have a few guys ready, they would call me and I'd come pick them up. So I wanted to keep it as ethical as possible also um, by only using um, animals that had passed away naturally in, in the stores. You must have a really eclectic friend circle. Just, you know, oh, yes. 
pet store owners and hunters and, <laughs> and yeah. people call call you up in odd hours of the night. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lauren, I got a big one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like that's how I started. And then um, um, in 2012, I, I met um, the owner of Necromance, which is, she owns this natural history and oddity shop in Hollywood. And I kind of just approached her and showed her my work and she was the first one who encouraged me to, oh my gosh, you need to like sell this stuff. You need to make a living doing this. And so I thought, oh, I guess maybe I could. So I made her a bunch of small pieces to put in her store, some rabbits and mice, hamsters, things like that. And um, also some jewelry. I used to make like little um, necklaces with baby mice and things like that. And they all sold out. So I kept making more and um, kind of entered the art world in that way and did a few gallery shows, um, but still just wasn't feeling fulfilled. Um, and it wasn't until I started when people asked me to do their pets and when I was working on the pets that I felt that deep sense of fulfillment that I was really looking for. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you can see where your heart's at, right? It's not about the money. It's really about helping others through a difficult time with yeah. the gifts that you have. I'm curious because yeah. yeah, Sean brought a really interesting point and you guys talked about it about the making animals in unrealistic positions with clothes and stuff. Does, have mm-hmm. you ever had someone do that with a beloved pet or is it always in a realistic position? That's a good question. I think overall, I think they've all been, um, people want them in a sleeping pose. Um, usually something gentler on the eye, not something so jarring maybe as like their pet in like a pirate outfit or something. So uh, I'm trying to think if I've ever done anything like that. I don't think I have. I think everything that I've returned has been pretty like solemn and um, peaceful looking. The one, I did get a request from a woman that wanted her cat to be made into a lamp but the lamp was supposed to, I guess, the, you know, would be that the body of the cat would be the stand of the lamp. And then she wanted the cat to be in this like pirouetting position with a tutu and then the light like at the top. <laughs> so, I mean, I've oh. gotten requests, but that one never came through. But, um, you know, people have ideas. And then when they, where do people put them? Do they put it like in their bedroom? Because I'm curious about, because a lot of people have like a shrine or for their loved one, it's on the mantle. Like I'm, I'm curious because mm-hmm. it's such a, sometimes it's a big animal. Where do they actually, will keep, would they keep the, the animal when it's done? Um, usually people will, they'll start creating a, a special place in their home, you know, start preparing. So when I'll get like a cat or something, Sometimes people will tell me, oh, I already have a spot picked out on the mantle or the spot picked out in the corner of the living room, or I'm just going to, a lot of people put them back in their favorite spots. So like lots of cats and dogs have like a favorite chair or couch and they'll end up just placing them back right where they, where they were so that they can continue that, that life. One last question I have of this. I have so many questions. Um, Another question is if an animal dies, I think you post on your Mm -hmm. Instagram, um, and there's other animals that are part of the family. Do Is that weird for that animal, like the animals that didn't die, to see mm-hmm. the their, their friends stuffed? From what I've heard, no. Um, I've actually, lots of people have told me that, you know, they're worried about 
presenting the deceased pet back into the family, but people have been um, really surprised at the the calmness. The animals, the living pets, will oftentimes come back, come up to the taxidermy or the bones that have been cleaned, and they'll kind of even greet them with recognition or um, like, "Oh, you're home." And people say that like their home just feels whole again once. Um, their preserved pet or the bones or whatever preservation has come back home. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's a great question. Yeah. I wonder about that. And, you know, people say, and and I have a dog as well, like we talked about, but I think the positioning of the dog and all that, it, it just relates to how they were in life. Because like, you know, when you wake up, you, you see your dog or cat or animal in a certain position. You know, when you hear, mm-hmm. hear it, walking you know that it's going to go to somewhere else you're watching tv and it always sits in the same spot i'm trying to think what would i want if i was to get my dog what would i want i'd want him i want him sleeping that's a that's a nice restful kind of thing um or i could go i could go opposite and go like you know he's about to like bark or he's growling at something (laughs) and then just position him by the door and then see he can protect us Yes. There's so many different ways and everybody has um, their a specific thing that they want. Some people are really specific about they want like the whole pelt returned. So they want the whole fur and skin um, leatherized and just returned as is like a floppy skin. And then some people say they want that, but they don't want the tail included or they don't want the face included. So or some people just want the paws. Some people just want the skull. It's really interesting to see what people want it's, it varies so much and what some people will will cross you know some people will draw the line at taxidermy but bones are totally okay or some people will cross the line at bones and taxidermy is okay so yeah our weird. last our last guest said she'd want the bones and i thought that was interesting and that's what you're saying oh, some people just want the, just want the bones yeah yeah a lot of people just want the bones that's interesting. And uh, another question, quick question, <laughs> is uh, so we do this with animals. Why don't we do it with humans? Is there a, a specific reason for it? Or is it just that the culture hasn't got there yet? Or I think it's a cultural that? thing. Mm. I think, yeah, we're just not there yet. But working with humans is something that I've kind of dreamt about. You know, if I ever got the opportunity to clean a human skull for someone's family, I think I would love to do that. Uh, I feel like that's the next frontier, kind of, because <laughs> um, I haven't worked on anything human before. Um, but I don't see too much of a difference um, in keeping something like that. Some people might think that's creepy, but cultures all around the world keep their family members' whole bodies in their homes for many, many years, um, and that's normal. And people collect human bones and human skulls, but we don't know who they are which is kind of unethical. We don't know how these bones came into a collection, but you know, your mom's skull, if she wills it to you, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because we had someone on the podcast, Brian Lehman, and he went to, I think the Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia yeah. And they, they raised the dead every year, yes. clean, clean it and everything. And I'm like, why, so why can't they just keep it uh, like rather than bury it? Why can't they just ha- actually, um, taxidermy, I guess, and just keep it there in the house, like for 
for life. And I think it's it's interesting. I wonder if we're ever going to get there as a society for that to be okay. Yeah, I do too. I really do wonder. I, I unfortunately, I feel like it won't happen. Mm. I just feel like we're we're the world is just going head first into technology and into more into the internet. And I just don't see, unfortunately, like the tangible stuff of life being important, which is so sad. The realness is not. I I totally get that. But there is a movement. I think there's a movement towards uh, people and communities and and, um, individuals who are reviving some of those old, old crafts. What have you? I mean, like, it's not that different than someone who's learning how to, you know, make knives again in the old classical way or, you know, um, what are those things called? Uh, those people that are in those hammers and they hammer down metal. Metal? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Like a metal, like a smith, a blacksmith. Blacksmith. Yeah. Right. Blacksmith, right? Like a lot of those crafts. And I'm not saying that it's obviously the same as what you're doing but these are these are traditional older type of things we did maybe Mm -hmm. 100 years ago 50 years ago that people are reviving because we appreciate the craft work again so i don't think it's necessarily going to die off and again it's it's still happening in in our collective memory as a whole like joshua reminded me reminded me of uh when i was visiting this church monastery and you know, they practice the old Orthodox Eastern Christian uh, way of uh, religion. And they have, um, I've never seen it, but they showed me some relics that they had of which is essentially, you know, old saints or, you know, people of that, I guess, caliber. They've collected things like even like little bones in their fingers and their hands they've collected Mm -hmm. and they honor those and they share those and they people come and they pray and they worship. But like, that's not that far off from us. From no. like today, I mean. No, yeah. But I wonder if it's ever going to get to the full. Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, ask my mom if she wants me to it. have her skull. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's something that could happen, right? You could gift your yeah. bones to. Oh, I, I, no, it, it can happen. Um, I don't, like, this is something that I want for my body. I would, I would love to be skeletonized and articulated and kept with, you know, my dog skeleton, like in a, you know, private ossuary so that, you know, I can always be there with her. Like, that's my dream, my afterlife dream. Um, (laughs) But, and there are services, um, there's a service called Skulls Unlimited. They actually, they run like a huge undertaking. Um, They're in, I think, Texas or somewhere. I'm so sorry. I'm not sure exactly where, but they're in the middle of the country somewhere, but they have a huge company where they process bones and they have a program where you can donate your skeleton and they'll clean and articulate human skeletons for families. Wow. The more I talk to people, the more I learn about all the different ways we mourn and the ways we want to remember. So yeah, it's such, so cool. That's so yeah. cool. And so I'm curious now about losses. Have you ever lost a pet yourself or have your, cause I know you have, you have some dogs, right? Um, yeah. Have you ever lost a pet? Or I've, are you? I've lost no? many, but mm-hmm. yeah, not not like a big pet. I've lost, you know, I had my my hairless rat Lottie. Um, I got her in 2012, and I only had her for about a year. Um, but she was like the first like mammal pet that I had had in a while since like childhood that I really connected to. And when she died, it was it was huge, and I didn't think that you know losing they call them like pocket pets. Sometimes they're referred to even as even as disposable pets because they're, 
you know, seen as they have smaller lifespans and um, people don't give them the same amount of veterinary care or things like that. But she taught me just about the souls of animals and that she had one. And we had this connection. She always sit on my shoulder and she would clean me. And it was just so precious. And she just was a huge inspiration to everything that we're doing. And I, you know, I have my three dogs now. Um, my oldest one, Laika, she just turned 10 and she's a whippet. And I'm already planning on, you know, what's, what we're going to do with her. I have a whole plan in place where if she passes away, I'm going to run and get her a private freezer, keep her in there until I'm ready to work on her myself. Um, it's going to be a huge job. And I don't know how it's going to be emotionally yet for me. Um, but I've been slowly kind of just mentally preparing myself for that. Wow. You're right. Like that's interesting that you, you, I think you're well-prepared and you give yourself the freedom to work on it when you can. It's the first person we had on the podcast that had a pet rat. So what's it like having a rat? I I have no idea. (laughs) They're awesome. They're, I, I always recommend like if you're in an apartment or a student that doesn't have time for a bigger cat, like a cat or a dog that. Rats are an amazing alternative pet. They act just like a dog or a cat. They can learn their name. They can learn tricks. They're super affectionate. They're just, they have huge personalities. Each one is so different. So um, they're just really cool. Um, the only thing that's not cool about them is that they, they do have a very short lifespan around the hairless rats, only a year and a half to two years. And, you know, a hairy normal rat would be about two to three years. Wow. And so do you keep them in the cage or do you let them free like in, like any other animal, like a dog or cat? Um, most people keep them in a small um, to large cage. Like the bigger the cage, the better, because they do like to move around and play. And then um, we used to let them out. Like whenever we were home, we would open up the cage and kind of corral an area in the living room off so that they could just have free range. So it's just really fun to see like what kind of antics they'd get into. They're just they're like little acrobats and it's really funny. <laughs> just a little soulmate. <laughs> I didn't really teach her to do anything. And she was an older rat when I got her. She'd already had like two litters and she was already a year old when I got her. So I was, I just wanted her to have like a, a relaxing retirement. Nice. Yeah. And so uh, I guess, is there any other kind of losses you had along the way? Knock on wood so far. Haven't had any big losses. But I know they're coming. Um, my own, my opa has pretty severe dementia, and he's. They just he used to love going to Trader Joe's. And uh, do you guys have Trader Joe's up there? Not yet. I wish we did. Ah, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, he loves Trader Joe's, and the last time he was there, um, he was having a hard time, you know, just finishing walking around the store. And the checker that knows him really well. And my mom, you know, both started crying. I think that was the last time that he was going to be at Trader Joe's shopping on his own. So it's it's hard and it's getting there. And we were really close. So like I said, he was the one that was really supportive and letting me uh, learn taxidermy in his garage. So and, and they're coming. They're, I know that there are losses that are, are imminent. So I'm just, just kind of doing my best to prepare for those. And um, taking care of myself along the way. Do you think your uh, career has helped you? Has helped you come to terms with loss, and also helped you find ways to 
continue those bonds after the person has died and also helped you remember them? I think so. I think so. But I, I do wonder how it's going to, it'll be different for a human loss because I'm not, mm. uh, you know, I'm not able to take my opus skull, even though I, maybe I wish I could, but <laughs> you know, that would be frowned upon, unfortunately. Yeah. And I kind of feel like he had the pre-plan at a funeral home, like a really traditional funeral home. And I feel like when he passes that I'm going to want to call them up and be like, Hey, like, let me do this. It's my grandpa. Like leave him alone. Mm. I feel like those feelings are going to bubble up. <laughs> so I'm not really sure how to deal with that yet from like, because this is what I do for a living and I, you know, work with um, other like human morticians and death doulas and green funeral directors. And from all the things I've learned, I feel like I'm going to want to get involved. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to or not. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. And um, that's something we've talked to people about is the the healing process and also what it can give you in terms of getting involved in the actual funeral process itself. Like, for instance, washing the body or yeah. um, even just sitting and watching them do their job or you know, having a say into like, well, what the actual funeral or what, what the person's wearing and all this, all this yeah. can really, um, if the person wants to do that, can really add something to that, their healing and grieving. Um, obviously, yeah. if you don't want to do that, that's okay, too. You can, you don't have to, if you're not comfortable. Yeah. But I feel like that's what I missed with um, the loss of my Oma. You know, she got sick. She had congestive heart failure. And the past, like the last two months of her life, I don't think I, I saw her. And that was because she, you know, insisted she didn't want her grandchildren seeing her that way. And she didn't want um, us to remember her like that. But at the same time, I, now, after, you know, learning what I know now, I kind of wish that I had seen her and got to hold her hand and say goodbye because I didn't get to do that. Yeah, I think times have changed um in the sense of what we know just through research and how to facilitate grief processing a little bit yeah. more and anticipatory grief and all that and it's like once we're aware of it and i think it's the child it should be the child's choice on if they're wanting to or not because some children would say no i don't want to see you know oma but mm -hmm. you'd be the one that would say yes it was just it's just part of who you are that you're okay yeah. with the dying process but yeah, like, I remember uh, when my mom was in the hospital, she didn't want anyone to see her um, mm -hmm. in the hospital because she, you know, she wasn't, you know, looking the, the best. And I think that's yeah. just also part of our neuroses in the sense of feeling that we need to be the best or, or look appropriate for people to love us. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I think the best love is those people who when we wake up in the morning and we haven't showered and they still look at us with the same way. And I think there's something beautiful about that and yeah. be able to trust people that, you know, they're going to see you in the best way possible. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I wish she would have thought of, of us like that and hmm. um, knew that we wouldn't judge her or um, have any kind of ill feeling to how she looked. It's just so, it's so superficial and silly, like looking back at it, you know? <laughs> right. And so I'm curious, have you ever had a dream of her or Lottie? <laughs> um, yes. Capital I've, L. I've, <laughs> okay. 
I've had lots of dreams of my Oma, like, calling on the phone. I've never seen her in a dream, which is weird. I don't think I've seen her. I've only, she's called on the phone in dreams, though. Oh, really? Um, like, so, like, is it, like, a cell phone she's calling on, or is it, like, a landline? It's, like, a land, like old school awesome. landline with, like, a cord to the <laughs> wall. Whoa, that's wild. Which and is, so much- which is something I wasn't even raised with that, you know, like we had a cordless phone and, um, well, my Oma and Opa, they did have a wall phone like that. I don't even know what you call it, <laughs> a wall <laughs> phone. Um, but that's what, when I dreamt of her, she's calling from a phone like that. And, um, she always sounds fine and happy. And then I, I kind of, it's like, I have this, like a feeling that she's okay, but she's also very distant. Like she's not, she's somewhere else in the dream. That's so interesting. And do you guys talk about like what's going on in your life or do you remember the conversations at all? I don't, I don't remember the conversations. I was, I, I wish I could. Um, I need to get better at writing my dreams down. That's something I want to uh, start doing more of so that I can get better at, you know, recalling these things. Yeah, I wonder what you've talked about. You know, that's, that's so interesting. I, I wonder what know. you said, right? Yeah. Do you, rem- the, the phone. Do, do you remember how you felt after? Peaceful. I guess um, just knowing that she is okay. Because I, I always got the impression that she was okay. It wasn't like um, she was calling frantic or um, it was always her, just as calm, just as collected. But the the notion in my head was, Oh, you're very, you're not, you're not on earth. You're very far away. You're calling from somewhere else. Wow. That's so interesting. I wonder, so I wonder if that phone, because phone dreams are, I think, more rare than anything. So I wonder if that's really, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's why I was really excited when you said that. <laughs> I was like, cause there's a, huh. a couple, dr- I've only seen, I think one phone dream, like in all the thousands of dreams I've seen and heard. So it's it's yeah it's very interesting so if you're always having this that's so intriguing to me because i wonder if it's part of the way that like not seeing the death or not seeing her if that affected that's interesting that you say that because well when she passed away i got a phone call from my mom even though we lived in redlands california and my oma and opa also they moved to redlands and you know i was in the same town that she was when she died in the last you know those two months and she was sick I was in the same city within you know 10 minute drive but didn't get to see her and I got that phone call from my mom saying that she had just died maybe that's why because I never did see her and the information came from a phone mm. I don't know yeah it could be that's interesting though it's very interesting that's yeah, yeah. I'm really curious too because I've people like other people have reported that's why I was like almost looking for someone to have had a phone dream but i just haven't really ever come across that and i've always wondered as time goes on if those phone dreams like cordless or the like in the wall change to cell phone dreams because that's what we have now and i don't think i haven't seen a cell phone dream yet do you did she did she call you do you remember if she called you first or you call her first it's it's always her calling me Hmm. because she actually because because I'm just brainstorming here, but it seems like she created the distance in those last couple months. So she's uh-huh. calling from her end, oh, from a distance, yeah, that's interesting, right? Because yeah. that's the safe That thing. is interesting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. 
Yeah, I wonder I too. Like, about it that way. Well, even like through a, even like we could pass cell phones, we just go through Skype. Because I'm guessing a lot of people have relationships with parents and loved ones through Skype, and I haven't seen yeah. any of those dreams. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, very interesting topic. And wow. then for for Lottie, have you ever dreamt of her? calling you on the phone <laughs> no i don't remember her ever calling little, me on the little phone. rat phone like <laughs> <laughs> i, I can <could> speak <laughs> i think she's happily living her afterlife and she hasn't she hasn't visited me so i think she she taught me what she needed to and she's on her way yeah that's yeah. cool that's pretty cool yeah. wow all right so uh anything else you'd want to say about you know your your life or your taxidermy Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, all I know is that there's, I have a big plan. I can't really say it yet, but I'm working on other projects um, related to um, pet aftercare and such. So um, stay tuned. <laughs> That's all I, I can say for now. When um, wh- when will this news be out? I don't know. Um, okay. Hopefully within the next two years. <laughs> okay. I have a, two, a two-year limit. I'm trying to get all this stuff figured out. So... I- all right. Um, so when you're when you're done, when you can, so you have two years. Come back on. Yeah. We'll talk about it then. So then, oh, the that'd be awesome. I would love to. <laughs> and wonder. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this has been a very fascinating conversation, and you know, we we obviously went on pretty long talking about the taxidermy stuff because it's just so interesting, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are appreciating this as well because it does tie into grief. It ties into remembering uh, your pet loss because again um we do like to highlight that uh as a disenfranchised type of grief Mm -hmm. Um, and opening um people's eyes to how people mourn i think it's very important because even for me it's not something that you come across so hopefully it raises awareness on that sure yeah and i I love the thing that you're saying about um the relics um because that's kind of how i look at um, a lot of my work even like just the paw preservation if somebody just wants the paw of their cat returned i feel like that is is in its way like a saint's relic it's a direct line to that deceased loved one on the other side yeah that you know humans have a long history and for thousands and thousands and thousands of years we've uh, in some way or another uh tried to have some sort of connection with death and also our loved ones that end up dying and this is just a continuation of that it's something that again you know if if that is something that someone is comfortable with uh, wrapping their head around, then, you know, it, it's, it could be encouraging for them to kind of go and help them uh, deal with their grief and loss that they're dealing with. Because I imagine, you know, people who come see you are people who love their pets tremendously. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And so before we wrap up, the last question we always like to say is uh, if you could have a dream tonight of anyone who has died, um, what would that dream look like to you? If I could have any dream tonight, it would be for my Oma to tell me where she is and what it's like to die. I think that's what I would really like, is just to know what that experience is like so that I can go into it with, I guess, some kind of expectation um, or maybe possibly less fear because I'm just, I grasp to this earth and I'm so scared of letting go of my identity and to talk to somebody who's actually died and you know if they would have a way to to explain that whole process I think that would give me a lot of solace 
I hope you have sort of that dream and that reassurance that uh, there's more almost, right? And yeah, yeah. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot of mystery out there, that's for sure. All right. So uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast, sharing, being so open and just talking about your life. I got to say, I, I really enjoyed it. I Some people think it would be weird, but hey, this is who we are. <laughs> uh, everyone else thinks it's just as interesting. It's fine. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for being you and, and following your dreams and following the passion because hopefully mm-hmm. that, that can give other people not only the inspiration to do things that a lot of people are telling them not to do, but that you, there's something in you that knows what's right. And you you left certain jobs to find that and you found it. And I, I love that about you, that you follow your heart and you work from your heart. It's not mm-hmm. about all the other stuff that business can be about. So thank you for being yeah. you. Of course. Well, thank you. I'm so honored to be a part of this. And um, thank you so much for your insight on my grief dream. Also, so where can people find you? So now that people love you, where can they find you? Oh, well, you. you guys, um, Instagram is probably where I'm most active. Um, it's just at Precious Creature, one creature. Um, and I post there. I try to post at least a couple times a week. Um, but, you know, I try to stay off the internet as much as possible. Not really good for my head. <laughs> and then what's your website? My website is www.com preciouscreaturetaxidermy.com wonderful um yeah lauren (laughs) uh it's a real pleasure to speak with you and again like joshua said uh you know talked about a lot of different things and and how you pushed forward into uh doing what you do and love uh so we're just going to shout out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic we added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams and our other page at the Grief Dreams podcast. Um, And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.